Let's um, turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 15. We're looking at one verse this week. We're looking at verse 4. Romans 15, 4. says, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our, our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So let's back up for a second and get our uh, little flyover review here. If you remember, I'm not going to go through all of it, but Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11, Paul's de dealt with mainly the doctrinal portion of the, of, of the book, of the letter here. Um, he, he expounds on what the gospel is and what it means to us and for us through those 11 chapters. Um, obviously, you could read through the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and see the historical narrative of Jesus, and we can see the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension um, through Acts as well. And then Paul explains to us what that is in Romans 1 through 11. And then we get to Romans chapter 12, and he says... I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is reasonable service. What he's saying there is everything that I just taught you in Romans 1 through 11 are the mercies of God. Therefore, you ought to lay down your lives. And he's been dealing with that. That's the portion we've been in. He's, he's dealing with how we should lay down our lives for the brethren, how we should use our gifts and talents for one another within the church, how we should act when... We face persecution. Remember, he says, bless those and bless and curse not. Um, he dealt with how we should act towards our government, our civil government. And then, he, then he's just recently taught us how we are to receive one another. We are to receive one another, not judge one another for things that we're free to do in, in Christ. Remember the guy, the, the, the Jew coming into the church that could not eat pork? Don't judge that person because they, they're not, their conscience is not free to eat. And you, even though you are free to eat, don't eat in front of them and, and cause them to stumble. And if you remember, I said from about Romans 14.1 to probably Romans 15.7, the overarching view there is to receive one another. That's what Paul is telling us. And he's de dealing with different ways how we are to receive one another. And then we come to this verse here and he says, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. So let me give you my, my three points of doctrine this morning. Um, the first point is lessons in Christology. The second point is lessons from the past. And the third point is lessons for the future. So the first point here is lessons in Christology. It says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. This is in my notes, but remember when Paul is writing to these Roman Christians right here, they didn't have the completed canon of the New Testament. They didn't probably didn't have a book yet, uh, one letter yet in the New Testament. The first letter they received in the New Testament was the book of Romans. So they didn't, they, they couldn't, Oh, let me check out Ephesians. Let me check out Colossians. They couldn't do that. They didn't have pocket New Testaments like we could all picked up yesterday, right? 
So he's saying those things that were written aforetime were written for your learning. And what a beautiful thing it is to know and have that we have this clearly spelled out in our New Testament for us to understand the way that we should see our Old Testament. We are not to throw out the Old Testament scriptures. We are to learn from them. Now this is clearly is not meaning anything that was written in the world was written for our learning. That's not what Paul is saying. Because there are many foolish and stupid things written by pagan worshipers before the New Testament was written, right? And I'm personally not one that would tell you to shy away from a book, whether written by a prophet or a pagan. I do believe I could, I could personally read about anything and learn from it. I would say that we should be well-read in a variety of subjects by a multitude of authors, even the ones you don't agree with. However, know why you don't agree with them. And be able to spot the error when you come across it. But this is also why I would suggest a person that's a young convert, somebody who is just, you know, they, they, they just came to Christ, I would tell them to read within orthodoxy for a while. Read, read those safe and trusted men for a while. Grow from those men. Now, oh, that's a little side rabbit trail, I guess, because Paul isn't talking about the writings of Plato or Aristotle here. He's talking about the, the writings of Moses, Isaiah, Malachi, Solomon, David, the Old Testament saints whose letters are considered canon. So to simply put this, the, the canon of Scripture was written for our learning. But what does that mean? It means that those Old Testament books that were accepted by Christ and the apostles as canon, we should spend time in them to learn. To learn what? Well, first and foremost, to learn what Paul just brought up in the previous verse. Look at the previous verse there. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. To learn what from the Old Testament Scriptures? To learn Jesus Christ. He is the main subject of the Old Testament. It wasn't Israel. It wasn't a different God that, you know, people say, you know, the God of the Old Testament is mean, but the God of the New Testament is not. He's nice and gracious and loving. Well, it's the same God in the New Testament and the Old Testament. It was Jesus Christ is the main subject and Him coming as a Savior for the world. Do we understand that? Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. And verse 13. We don't need to necessarily read all these verses, but I do want to read them just so we can pick up the context. Uh, Luke 24, 13, it says, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs. I don't know how long that is. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holding that they should not know him. And he said to them, What manner of communications are these that you have one to another as you walk and are sad? And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering, said unto him, 
Are thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, hast not, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? What had come to pass? The crucifixion of the Son of God had just come to pass. Did you not know about this, sir? And he said to them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And behold, and beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. The women that showed up at the grave. Remember, this is the third day. What happened on the third day? That grave wasn't, he, it was empty. So the women showed up at the grave, and in verse 23, and when they found not his body, they came saying that this had also, they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What scriptures? Old Testament scriptures. That was it. That's what, they, that's what he was expounding unto them. They didn't have the New Testament yet. So he starts in Moses, which is really Genesis, the first five books. He starts in, in Moses, which is the first five books, and went on through the prophets, which I don't think that man, he just went through the first five books and then jumped over to the, into the prophets, like he skipped over the Psalms and Proverbs. But this simply means that he went through the Old Testament and he, it says, he expounded unto them. The word expounded is what I seek and pray to do every Sunday up here. And this may be a side note, but I think it's important. If you notice, and I noticed this, I just actually brought this up to my wife, that almost every message that I preach opens up with the same words or similar words. Let's open up our Bibles to whatever it is. There's a reason for this. And it's that what I have to say is not really important. What my opinion is, is not important. How we feel about a cer certain subject or not, is not important. What is important is, what does the Word of God say? Not what you think about it, not what I think about it. Well, the, pra the pastor thinks this, who cares? What does the Word of God say? Hopefully he's in line with the Word of God. That's what expounding it is to unfold the meaning of what is said. To explain it. It means to, to translate or interpret. So it's to take what is said and interpret it to translate it into our language. Or a way we could say it is to put it into the simplest speech that we can. Not to speak high and lofty words that only the most well-learned can understand, but to bring it down to the smallest of minds. I think it was R.C. Sproul that I was listening to a long time ago, and he said, if you can't explain it to a child, you don't understand it. 
And I say as a pastor, I should be able to do that from here. Now, sometimes, yes, we get into these high and lofty doctrines, but I should be able to break that doctrine down and feed it to you in small pieces. That's what expounding it is. And this is what Jesus did with the Old Testament to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He brought it to their minds because they didn't understand. And it wasn't until after this. Look at verse 31 of the same chapter. He had already told them. He had already expounded to them. In verse 31, And their eyes were opened, and they knew Him, and He vanished out of their sight. <laughs> like, I finally understand. Where did He go? So the main theme of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. His name is plastered all over it. The name Yeshua. Every time, you, if you read it through the Old Testament, you see the word salvation. That is the name of Jesus. In every, all throughout the Old Testament. When you read the Old Testament, you should see Jesus. Literally and typologically. He is the Creator in Genesis 1. He is the second Adam who perfectly obeyed God and earned eternal life for His people. He is the seed of Abraham by which His descendants will be more than the stars of the sky and sands of the seashore. He is the Son of Promise who was to be sacrificed on a mountain. He is the true lawgiver, not Moses. All law came from Jesus Christ. He is the great I Am who Moses approached. He is the Passover lamb which, got, which kept God from destroying the firstborn. He is the temple sacrifice whose blood was poured onto the mercy seat for the sins of His people. And He is the great high priest who made the sacrifice. He is the ark by which the righteous were saved from the floodwaters. He is the pillar of smoke and fire leading the Israelites through the wilderness. He's the Son of Man and David. He's the rock which Moses smote in the wilderness. He is the one who Jacob wrestled. He is the wisdom that Solomon spoke about. He is the prophet's desire, the psalmist's songs, and the law's fulfillment. You see, if you think Jesus just came around in the New Testament, you're missing the whole point of the Old Testament. You're missing the main point of Scripture. It's all about Jesus. You say, I thought the Old Testament was about Israel and the New Testament about the church. No. They are byproducts of the main theme of redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. It's all about Him and His glory. And as I mentioned last week, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, then we're called disciples, right? And what does disciple mean? It means a learner. You're, you're going to be a learner of Him. We spend our lives learning after Him, of Him, through Him, and to Him. And in so doing, we most certainly do not throw out the larger portion of our Bibles because we're under a new and different covenant. Let's move on to our next point. That was a lot to say in a small point. Lessons from the past. We also can learn other things from the Old Testament Scriptures, right? 
which will teach us what the latter portion of this verse says. I'm actually going to turn back there real quick. It says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Here's a way that we can learn that from the Old Testament. How can we learn to have patience and, as it's translated in the NASB, encouragement? How can, we, how can we learn to have patience and encouragement from the Old Testament? Look at Israel. God made promises to Israel. The one main one everybody talks about, right? They still talk about it today, is the land promise. God promised Abraham a land in around 2000 B.C. Abraham died and didn't enter into that land. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac died and didn't enter into that land. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob died and didn't enter into that land. It wasn't until around 1300 B.C. that the people would enter into the land. Turn with me real quick to Joshua. Chapter 21. Joshua 21 and verse 43. It's a little portion of Scripture that people, either they don't know it's in their Bibles or they just read over it and don't pay attention to it. or I don't know. Joshua 21, 43. Remember, God promised Abraham a land in 2000 B.C., right? In verse 43, And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which he sware to give unto their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. And the Lord gave them rest about, according to all that he sware unto his fathers, unto their fathers, and there stood not a man of all their enemies before them, and the Lord delivered all the enemies into their hands. There failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. God promised Abraham a land for his descendants, and right here we can see God fulfilled his promise right here in Joshua. The land promise has been fulfilled. It was fulfilled right there. However, it was roughly 700 years of waiting to receive that promise. 700 years of waiting. So can we be patient with the promises of God? We should be able to because we can see that He is faithful in keeping His promise. There's a lot more that we could look at. But remember, the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians for how long? 400 years. Let me put this into perspective real quick. America has not been a country for 400 years. So we could go back before George Washington, and those people before him up until now would have still been slaves. 
This means that if you were born during this time of slavery, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and all your children would probably knew nothing but slavery. Lived, born, lived, died, had children, they born, lived, died, all under slavery. But God promised them a savior and a land. Did God provide? Amen, he did. Was there much suffering and pain along the way? Yes, there was. Think on this. God promised Abraham that land. In between this time of the promise and the fulfillment, the Israelites were slaves for 400 years, which God also promised Abraham in Genesis 15. He told them they were going to be slaves. And then you all know what happened after, he, after that slavery, right? Moses goes to Pharaoh and let my people go. And what happens when Pharaoh finally does let the people go? Then they wander in the wilderness for another 40 years. So you could have actually been born in the wilderness, lived your whole life in the wilderness, and died in the wilderness. That's all you ever knew in your whole life. Every day I woke up and I had manna or quail. My whole life, that's it. Yet God promised a land flowing with milk and honey to him. Do you think it would have been hard to believe that if you were there? Everyone that you know or ever have known or known about were either slaves or wandering in a desert. Experientially, all that you've ever known was slavery or wandering in the wilderness. Can you put yourself in those shoes for for a second and visualize this? Now, if they were to do what some call newspaper exegesis, y'all heard of that? So when we look at the newspaper and, and, and then try to interpret the Word of God by the newspaper. Newspaper exegesis, by looking at their surroundings and at their local news, what would they expect? If they just looked out at their surroundings and the news at the time, I don't think they had like Channel 7 News, they didn't have Ed Piotrowski on there. <laughs> But what was going around? What was everybody seeing? What was everybody going through? It was nothing but suffering. The only thing that they could expect was suffering. Not that they would be given a land flowing with milk and honey. If they simply looked at their surroundings and history, they would have had no hope. However, That's not how they or we should look. We should do as Paul says here in Romans, to look to the Scriptures for learning. Not at our surroundings, but at the Word of God. Because what is something that is true about the Word of God? It never fails, it's always correct, and nothing can thwart the will of God. So if God says something and we have it recorded for us within the canon of Scripture, we can rest assured that it will come to pass or that it already has come to pass. I don't care what the scientists say. I don't care what the the archaeological... I don't even know what they're called right now. The people that dig up bones and stuff. (laughs) I don't care what they say. You know why? Next week they'll say the opposite. 
God's Word never changes. So that's how we can have patience and comfort of the Scriptures. Or to put it like, like I said, like the NASB, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, that's what we can learn from the Old Testament. We can be encouraged and have perseverance because we can look back and see a people that in the eyes of man would have had no hope and have no encouragement, but God kept His Word like He always does and like He always will do. So we can look to the Scriptures to see the people of God, though from the outside looking in, look like they had no hope, that death and destruction were inevitable. Their experience would tell them that either God lied or that He failed to keep His promise. However, if they were looked to the Scriptures instead of their circumstance, they would have patience and encouragement in their circumstances. And they would know that God always keeps His Word and that they would have hope. That's some lessons from the past. Now lessons for the future. It says... This is the third point here, lessons for the future. It says that what was written was written so that we might have hope. Hope in what? Hope for what? What is hope? I'm glad you asked. Hope is a confident expectation. For the Christian, it is a joyful and confident expectation for that which is good. It's to anticipate with pleasure. That's what I think the Strong's Concordance said. To anticipate with pleasure. So it's not just to be like, yeah, I know what's coming, but it's to be excited for and to take pleasure in what is coming. That's where our hope is at. It's in the future. But what are we hoping for? Well, that's a lot. Let's go ahead and start back in Psalm 22. Start with some of the psalm, psalmist's hope. And there's a lot of hope in the psalms. Starts out Psalm 22. You might have heard this these first words before. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, for thou hearest not it in the night season and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a man a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake their heads, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bowls have compassed me. Strong bowls of Bashan have beset me round about. They gaped open their, with their mouth as a ravening and roaring lion. 
I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death, for dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I would declare thy name unto the brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Yea, ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all ye seed of Israel. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the afflicted, the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him, but when he cried unto him, he heard, My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the, Lord, the kingdom is the Lord, and he is the governor among the nations. All they that be fat upon earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him, and none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born that he hath done this. I didn't plan on reading the whole psalm, but why stop? Psalm 22, verse 1. Jesus quotes it on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know why he quoted that? I don't believe it's because God had forsaken him. But you know, still to this day, in order to tell the congregation what psalm to turn to or what chapter of the Bible to turn to, well, they didn't have the Bible, they have the Tanakh, the Jewish people. You know what they, how they do that? You know how they tell you to turn to Psalm 22? They say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They quote the very first part of the psalm, and therefore you know to turn to that portion of Scripture. That's what Jesus was doing upon that cross. He's saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Turn to Psalm 22. This is being fulfilled in your midst right in front of you. Look at verse 6. Well, no, let's go down. I lost a spot. Well, we'll start at verse 6, I guess. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of them and despise of the people. Who's that talking about? Jesus Christ, who came unto his own and his own received him not. It says in verse 12, Many bowls have compassed me, strong bowls of Bashan have, have beset me round. They gaped open me with their mouths as a raving Ravening and roaring lion, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue.
cleaves to my jaw, and thou hast brought me un into the dust of death, for dogs have compassed me about. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. What is that talking about? It's talking about the crucifixion of our Lord. Now remember, this is written by David. David was before the cross. And he writes about the crucifixion when, when David wrote this, crucifixion didn't even exist. You know what's great though? The psalm doesn't end there. The psalm doesn't end with a crucified Savior. It does not end with just nails and feet pierced. Look at verse 25. My people shall... Be of thee in the great congregation, or my praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among nations. There was great hope in this psalm. Of a coming Savior who would die for them, which was still future when he wrote this, who was despised and rejected of men, whose, car, whose garments were, 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 they cast lots for, whose hands and feet were pierced. But that wasn't the end of, them, of him. If that was the end of him, what hope would that be? To quote Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, he says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But after that great and terrible event on that crucifixion, he would be praised in the great congregation. That's what it says. And all the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto Yahweh through him. All, it says all the kindreds, which means family. Your Bible version probably says family. All the families of the nations will worship him. You see that hope? It's not a hope for a failing kingdom, but a hope for a future kingdom that includes all the families of the nations. And is this not the hope of Abraham as well? When God told Abraham in Genesis 12 that in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. That was the promise to Abraham. In your, and it was in his seed, in your seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Well, let me bring this out. Abraham's seed is Jesus Christ. That's who he is talking about. And if you think I'm wrong, that's fine. But I'll stand with the Apostle Paul. When he says in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 16, he says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He says not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. That's what Paul said. And then in verse 29 of the same chapter, he says, And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So through Christ, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And is that not what Psalm 22 just said as well? The Abrahamic promise. 
That was their hope. Let's see more. Turn up to Psalm 72. I guess I'm going to read a lot again on this one. Psalm 72, verse 6. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass, as showers that water the earth. In his day shall the righteous flourish, in abundance of peace so long as the moon endures. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall, shall serve him, for he shall deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also, and him that hath no helper. He shall spare the poor and needy, and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall their blood be in his sight. And he shall live, and to him shall be given of the gold of Sheba. Prayer also shall be made for him continually and daily shall he be praised. There shall be a handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun, and men shall be praised in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. You almost need no commentary. But I'm going to give you some anyways. For free. Let's look at a couple of these verses in here. Look at verse 6 and 7. He says, And he shall come down like rain upon the mown grass, as showers that water the earth. In his days shall the righteous flourish, in abundance of peace so long as the moon endures. He shall come down. That's the incarnation. Where did Christ come from? It wasn't that the, 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 like, like the Father spoke him into existence and he didn't exist before that. He existed in glory before the world began and he came down and he took on flesh. We can see the incarnation there. And it says the righteous will flourish in abundance of peace. In verse 8, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. He shall have dominion. You know what that means? That means He will reign. And now Jesus declared this about Himself, did He not? In Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, He says, All authority is given unto Me. All authority. He has all authority. He is reigning now. He's crushing His enemies. Verse 11. I don't know how I had my Bible for so long. Been in Christ for so long and didn't see some of this. Verse 11. All kings shall fall down before Him. All nations shall serve Him. Could this be any more clear? 
Well, that's not what it means. That's what it says. I... This seems like almost total conquest, doesn't it? This isn't looking just like a small victory, but a blowout victory. It's not like, well, God saved a few, but that God is conquering the nations. Is not this the hope that we see in Scripture? I mean, I just looked at two Psalms there. There's, there's plenty more. Just off the top of my head, you know, we, we think, oh, the kingdom of God is this small little tiny thing and the world's like this and, and it's all evil and it's just... But what about Revelation chapter 7 where it says that the number of them, those being saved is a number so high that no man can count? It's all over the place. We actually see some of this coming up this time of the year, right? Christmas time. Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government or the rule shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order and to establish it with just judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. What does it say? Increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It will continue to increase. As David says, actually, in the end of the psalm right here, in verse 18 and 19 of this psalm, he says, Blessed be the Lord. God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things, and blessed be His glorious name forever, and let the whole earth be filled with His glory. Not just a, a little holy of holies that's in, in Jerusalem, but the whole earth filled with His glory. Like Habakkuk says, in Habakkuk 2.14, it says, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As I say often, how much does the water cover the sea? We could walk right out here. Well, I wouldn't walk from Conway, but we could drive out there and we could walk onto the beach and we could look out and look at, and look at how much water covers the sea, all of it. It's a lopsided victory for God. Our God doesn't lose. He's going to continue to march forth with His gospel, breaking down His enemies' fortresses and planting a flag of victory. I win. You say, but I don't see it. I look out and I don't see it. Well, how many of y'all in here heard of St. Athanasius? Listen to this quote from St. Athanasius. When the sun has come, Darkness prevails no more or no longer. Any of it that may be left anywhere is driven away. It says sun, S-U-N. So when the sun has come, darkness prevails no longer. Any of it that may be left anywhere is driven away. So also now the divine epiphany of the word of God has taken place. The darkness of idols prevails no more. And all parts of the world in every direction are enlightened by his teaching. That's Athanasius. If you know anything about Athanasius, you would wonder, well, how would Athanasius see this? 
There's a saying that's called Athanasius Contramundum. It means Athanasius against the world. You know why? Because during his time, the heresy of Arianism was on the rise. Not only was it on the rise, but it was quite popular, and Athanasius was almost alone in defending against it. The heresy of Arianism is that Arian denied the deity of Christ. That Christ is not God, that he's just a man. And it was on the rise, and Athanasius was against the world. He was standing there almost alone, fighting against that heresy. You know, that's what the um, Council of Nicaea was actually about. You ever been in a discussion with an atheist and they say, well, they put together the Bible with the Council of Nicaea and they think they won their argument? That's not what happened. The Council of Nicaea was about defending the deity of Christ. And Athanasius was there defending it. We also have the story, I'm, you might have heard of uh, St. Nick. Punching Arius in his face at the Council of Nicaea. Now, we don't know if that's true or not. I like to believe that is true. But if Athanasius was one of the few that was there defending the deity of Christ at this council, how could he say darkness prevails no more? How could he say that? I mean, you're there alone, Athanasius, against the world. And you say darkness prevails no more. Well, I think Athanasius believed the scriptures, not a circumstance. He may not have been able to see it when he looked around, but when what he saw is what he looked into the scriptures, he saw this. And he could stand there against the world because my God will prevail. And did he not at that time? But this is not our only hope. It's not simply that the kingdom will grow like a mustard seed into a great tree that all the birds of the air will flock to that Jesus tells us in Matthew 13. It's not just that this small stone that would grow into a giant mountain that would consume the world as we see in Daniel chapter 2 or the many other passages that declare that God's kingdom will prevail in its spread to all nations and families. So our hope is not only found in the growth of the kingdom, but in the fact that the kingdom will never end. That those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ will continue on forever in worship and service of our Lord. We could call it the consummated kingdom. We look forward with great hope to the time that there will be no more sin or death, right? This is what we often hear about. We, we all look forward to that time when heaven is going to be heavenly bliss with no, no sin and no death. And praise God for that. Now we still suffer illness, pain, sin, and death. But there's coming a day when those things will be gone and we will continue on in the presence of our King forever. When is that day coming? I don't know. And if anybody tries to tell you that they, that they do know, they're a liar and run from them. Or stone them. I'm kidding. But I'll tell you what the Word of God says about it. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 
and verse 20. First Corinthians 15 and verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after they, they that are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath... For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So when is it going to happen? Well, Scripture doesn't give us a date. But we do know that it will happen when Christ has put all enemies under His feet. And then what does it say? Then death will be gone. Look down at verse 54 of the same chapter. So when this corrupt, corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can look forward to this hope with great joy. Remember, that's what hope was. It was looking forward with great joy. It was taking pleasure in that what which was expected. How can we look forward with great hope and great joy is because it was purchased by the blood of our Savior and God promised it. Just as He promised the land to those old covenant people and provided it, He promised us the land and to quote the writer of Hebrews, we are presently receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken and it says in Revelation in verse 5 or chapter 5 and verse 10, the apostle John says, Thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign upon the earth. God is keeping His Word as you would expect. And we can have great hope because He has declared to us that not only His kingdom would advance, but that it would continue on forever. So let us learn that from the Scriptures. From those things that were written beforehand. And let us rest and persevere because we have this great hope. To close the doctrinal portion, I'm going to give us a little quote from 1 John here. In chapter 3, verse 1, 2, and 3, he says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not, because it knew Him not. Beloved, 
Now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. That's our hope. Our hope is, in the future, Christ is coming back. And his kingdom is going to go on forever. In righteousness and holiness. So let's get into our application. Our call to faith and repentance. As always, I, I guess you'd say, I was going to say I was going to come knocking on the door of the unbelievers and it made me think of Jehovah's Witnesses. But that's pretty much what I'm going to be doing this morning right now. To the person in here that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Though this message gives the believers great hope, you have no hope. As Paul said, he said to the Ephesian church, before they knew Christ, he said that they were they, they having no hope and without God in the world. Outside of Christ, there is no hope and you're without God in the world. And that's where you are today if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no hope for you. Hope is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, but I do have hope. You have what's called false hope. It's not real. You can hope for all the things in the world, but the sovereign God of the universe is in control. And when He says you have no hope, you have no hope. Hope is the confident expectation, and you can have no confidence in the future because this very moment, God may cut you off out of this world. The Christian's hope is based in the very words of God that cannot lie. Your hope is based on your fallible, sinful, corrupted mind. Listen, during the time I've been speaking this morning, probably about 10,000 people died in the world. Is that crazy? That's a crazy number, right? In about an hour, there'll be around 10,000 people that step off into eternity. And at any moment, any one of those moments could be ours. God, it says, the Scriptures teach us that God has set the boundaries for our lives. And you nor I can live one second past what God has set. And then we will stand before Him. And I have great hope for that day that I stand before Him. Because the blood of Jesus Christ has taken away my sins and washed me clean. You, if you don't know Christ, should be terrified of that day. If you don't know Christ, you will pay for your own sins for all of eternity under the wrath of Almighty God. So what's the answer for you? How can you be saved from that? It's to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. He kept God's law perfectly, never sinning, and only doing that which is good. That thing that you haven't done for one moment of your whole life. His whole life was about it. It was about obedience, always doing good, never sinning, never breaking God's law. And He kept that law and then He went to that Roman cross to be crucified, though He was innocent. He was crucified in between two criminals that deserved to die from their, for their crimes. Isn't it a blessing, He says to one of those criminals, today you will be with me in paradise. 
Because he redeems criminals. Though he was crucified and he was innocent, why was he crucified being innocent? Because on that cross, he took all the sins of all his people and laid them upon his shoulders. Had the wrath of the Father unleashed on him, and as the book of Isaiah says, that it pleased the Lord to crush him. Why would it please the Lord to crush him? Because the justice that was due for the sins of his people was meted out on him. Justice was, was, was meted out. That's why it was, it was his pleasure to mete out justice because our God is just and not, not one single person in here will step off into eternity and not either have their sins paid for by Christ or spend eternity paying for your sins. No sins go free. Jesus on that cross drank every last drop of God's wrath for His people. So that His people would be seen as sinless and holy in the sight of God. You know, that, that, that thought should blow our minds that when God sees me, He sees me perfect and righteous and holy. Y'all may think you see that with me, but you don't know what goes on in here. The Lord does, and He still sees me as perfect and righteous and holy. And though He died on that cross, soaking up the wrath of God, was buried, and He rose from the grave, defeating death. You know, I say this so often. This is why Jesus says in John 11, that if you believe in me, you will never die. Because he defeated death on that cross for his people. And as I say too, like death for the Christian is just walking outside that door. You just, you just walk to the next spot. He defeated death and he ascended to the right hand of his father. He sat down victorious. He has won. The war has been won. And now He commands all men everywhere to repent and believe. So that's your calling this morning. is not to make yourself better. It's not to do good works to try to earn, the favor, earn favor with God. That will never work. It's to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. To believe upon Him, the perfect sacrifice for sin and risen Savior. Now to us believers in here, this is a call to believe and take comfort in all of the Scriptures. You say, but I thought we were under the new covenant. We are. But as Paul says, we can and we should learn from the old covenant. This doesn't mean that we place ourselves back under that covenant, but that we can still learn from it. One thing we can definitely learn is what not to do when you're looking at Israel in the old covenant, right? You're like, I can't believe they did that. Me and Joshua actually talked about this that this morning. Have those dumb thoughts we have. I can't believe that they would act like that. And then, you know, a week later, you're doing the same thing. That's the problem that Israel always had was disobedience. It's the same problem that we have today. But we can also, and most importantly, learn Christ from that covenant. As I said before, 
if we read through the Old Covenant and miss Christ, we miss the main point of it. So we can feast upon Christ in the Old Testament Scriptures, and we ought to believe that. Christ is our Creator, Sustainer, Provider, and Savior. And if you don't see that in the Old Testament, you're looking through it through the wrong lenses. Contrary to popular belief today within evangelical Christianity, if you want to call it that, you are not the subject of Scripture. Jesus Christ is. So learn from Him in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Continue to feast on Him. It doesn't matter what book you're in. You should see Christ. To quote uh, Charles Spurgeon, he said, From every text of Scripture, there is a road that leads to Jesus Christ. Find that road. Read your Bibles like that. You'll see Him literally or typologically like, like I've already mentioned. But my, by all means, don't throw out those old writings just because you're under a new and different covenant. You know, that's a big problem we have today and those that spend so much time talking about the book of Revelation. And they make foolish and fancy applications of that book. Is they don't see that John was either quoting or referencing the Old Testament throughout that letter. I think it was over 400 quotations or, or references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. So if you don't know the Old Testament, how can you interpret that book? We don't see what Black Hawk helicopters and stuff in it. John had something in mind when he was writing those things. And I'm not going to get into all that today. But we should know our Bibles. We should know the Old Testament and the New Testament. So keep digging into the Scriptures, as Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, he says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instructions in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. All Scripture for every good work. Do you believe that? If not, repent. If you do, dig in. Keep digging in. Now, call to war. That was not the call to war. <laughs> the call to war here. God has promised us hope and perseverance and encouragement from the Scriptures. So should we not be encouraged to take the Scriptures into a world that has no hope? Or real encouragement? They will only persevere in sin. And God has given us the oracles of God to take into our families, to our friends, to our workplaces, and into the marketplace. And are we too busy for this? Are we too lazy for this? I think the problem oftentimes is we're too comfortable for this. And this ought not to be the case with us. Can we not look in the mirror and see the wretched man that we are, or woman, and then fathom that God has, the, the, the love that God has for us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You can look in the mirror and see your sinful self. 
and being honest and then think, Christ died for me. And then we would sit quietly. I mean, is it not true that when someone is first converted, it's almost like you, they won't shut up about Jesus, right? Somebody who, who's just converted, it's like everywhere they go, every person they talk to all the time, they're always talking about Jesus. Was that true of you? Why would it not still be true? Why would we become apathetic and lazy? Or worse, cowards? <coughs> Have we left our first love and found our love in the cares of the world? God forbid that's a, us, brethren. We're called to war. And one thing about soldiers in war is they aren't comfortable, they aren't lazy and apathetic towards the cause. They fight and fight, and when they're too tired to fight, they keep fighting. And when they're completely worn down and broken, a fellow soldier comes along and picks them up and encourages them to fight some more. Don't give up. Is not this a picture of what the church that is going into the world fighting the good fight? Is not that not what we're supposed to be doing? Brethren, you're giving only so much time on this earth for this mission. And one thing I can guarantee is that you won't regret spending too much time talking about Christ. When you step off into eternity, you're going to be like, man, I wish I didn't talk about Christ so much. I wish I would talked more about sports. I wish I would talked more about this or that. You won't regret the things that you've given up to advance God's kingdom. You won't regret the time that you spend at His feet and in bringing others to them as well. So let's lay down more of our lives for Him and the advancement of His kingdom so others can have this encouragement, perseverance, and hope in Christ. Amen.